I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Friday Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about the history of par. That's right, the history of par. The idea of par is absolutely pervasive in golf. It's how we keep track of scores in a golf tournament, score to par. It's how we judge the quality of a player's performance. It's how we categorize holes, par three, par four, par five. It's how we categorize courses, too. Par 70 and above, that's a full regulation course. Par 69 and below, that's something else. It's how we assess the difficulty of a golf course, even the worthiness of certain courses to host championships. If elite players score too far under par, the course is deemed not hard enough. Par dominates our thinking about golfer performance and golf course architecture to a degree that we don't even notice it most of the time. It's the water we swim in. And yet for most of golf history, par did not exist, certainly not in its current form where each hole has a designated par and birdies and bogeys are calculated in relation to that number. That idea of par in the grand sweep of the game's history is relatively new. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about where the idea of par came from, when and why it emerged. And we'll also talk about the effect that the idea of par has had on the game, an effect that, in my opinion, has not been super positive. My guest is the golf historian Stephen Proctor. Stephen is the author of the books Monarch of the Green, a biography of young Tom Morris, and The Long Golden Afternoon, an account of golf's rise in the decades before World War I. He's also the co-host of the new podcast, The Duffer's Literary Companion. All right, let's get to it. After this break, you'll hear from Stephen Proctor on the history of par. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses that don't slip, don't bounce, and are 100% polarized. My favorite pair is called Just Knock It On. They're in what Gooder calls the BFG style. Basically, they're for large noggins such as mine. I wear them all the time. Recently, I took them on a, a stand-up paddleboarding and kayaking trip on a lake, and they worked great in that setting. I'm in Santa Barbara right now where I grew up, and, and we're going to go to the beach a lot and, and maybe do some activities out in the water, and they'll certainly be useful for that as well. They are 100% polarized, very light, and they just sit very comfortably and steadily on my face. I don't have to be precious about them either because they're pretty cheap. And if I happen to lose them or if they fall off in the water or something like that, then, you know, I don't go into a panic about it. So if you want to support the show and pick up a pair, Gooder is giving fried egg listeners free shipping on your first order. You can go to gooder.com slash TFE and use the code TFE to get free shipping. Gooder offers a 30-day money-back guarantee and 100% satisfaction. So find your pair at gooder.com slash TFE and use code TFE 
to get free shipping. That's G-O-O-D-R. Gooder. All right, back to the episode. Stephen Proctor, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Garrett. Thank you for having me back. Interesting subject today. Look forward to talking about it. I've been curious about this topic for a while. You're the only other person I know who is equally preoccupied with it. We've talked about it on a few occasions. You certainly have a much better grounding in the actual history of the concept of PAR than I do. But I feel like we're sort of out on an island with researching this subject because I haven't seen an awful lot on it. So why did you get interested in the history of PAR? How did this come about for you? It came about for me when I was working on my first book about young Tom Morris because I became aware in doing the research on that of an article that had been written just before Tommy claims the championship belt in 1870. So he's won two opens in a row. He's, you know, training hard for the third open, knowing that if he wins it, he's going to claim the belt. And a man named Alexander Dolman, uh, writing for one of the golf publications in Scotland, did an article with two other golfers, Davy Strath, Tommy's best friend and closest rival, and Jamie Anderson, a man would go on to win three opens and was also quite a good friend to Tommy's and caddied for him in a lot of his key matches against Davy and other people. He asked, Alexander Dolman asked both of them, what did they think represented perfect golf at the 12-hole course at Presswick where the opens were contested in the early years? And they assigned a number to each hole. And in the course of trying to explain to the readers what he meant, because you need to keep in mind, this is the very first time this idea of something approaching par uh, had you know had been brought up because of some other history that we should go back to in a minute. But in any case, um, he used a term from the stock market for the right price for the share of stock, the par price for a share of stock. And so that's the first time the words gets used in the context of what should be scored on any given hole in 1870. You know, for all the hundreds of years of golf before that, Golf starts in about 1400, I think it's fair to say, because by 1457, the king has issued an edict banning it. So you figure it has to have been played at least 50 years to be broad enough to be banned. That's a reasonable start, and it might be earlier, but you don't have any written evidence before 1457. So if you go from 1457, you know, on up to uh, 1870, well, there are a lot of years in there. There are centuries in there. And, you know, no one ever thought of this idea of of a hole being a certain score you should make, mostly because golf was almost exclusively a match play game in that age. Pretty much every golfer would play stroke play twice a year for the spring medal and the autumn medal. And every other time they would be playing a match. And so there was no motive to assign a score to a hole. It was just you made five, I made six, I win. It doesn't it didn't matter. And it was not part of the thinking. But, you know, when young Tommy comes along and he starts putting up scores that are absurd scores, you know, then it gets people naturally to thinking about the idea of what you should score on a whole or what represents brilliance. You know, I think Dolman's attempt in the article was to show how incredibly brilliant Tommy was playing uh, in all the years that led up to it, because in the previous years, he'd set records for the 12 holes. And, um, you know, the record that he had set at that time, 51, turned out to be uh, two strokes higher than what they thought of as perfect golf 
only indicating to you that they never had any idea that anybody was going to go out and play perfect golf. It was a, it was a mythical ideal they were discussing. All of that is so fascinating. You know, first of all, we have these hundreds of years that elapse with golf being played and par not being a factor. You mentioned that one big reason for that is because match play is the dominant form of golf. Foursomes was even bigger. So most of the time when you were playing a match play, you were playing alternate shot with two other men uh, against two other men, both of you playing a single ball. So that even, you can see how that would diminish further this idea of a par score because you're not making any score. It's you and your partner making some score and the only thing that matters is that it be a lower one than the persons that you're playing against. And so there's just, there was no, it was not part of the thinking about golf. And, um, you know, even when you're reading early coverage of medal tournaments, there's not really an emphasis on the score per se. I mean, it's written down so-and-so won with this number. But you never see somebody comparing it to last year's number or, you know, the number of next year. It's only when someone does something so extraordinary, like at one point Gilbert Mitchell Innes shoots 88 in a medal at St. Andrews when scores were usually in the 90s. And so uh, high 90s a lot of the time for gentlemen golfers that age. And so that would then be noted because it was a record. No one had ever done it. But most of the time, the score hardly gets, you know, gets mentioned, but it's much more important who was attending, which men played, which uh, royalty was on hand to watch. All of that was vastly more important than what the score anyone posted. It was the Parks versus the Morrises, and exactly. individual performance wasn't necessarily a big subject. But when young Tom Morris comes along, the idea of individual brilliance in golf starts to take on a little more currency, which is maybe, I think you're implying, one of the first steps toward an idea of par. Because if you want to quantify individual brilliance, then something like par is almost necessary to think that through. Is that is that sort of what we're implying That here? is completely true, Garrett. You're exactly right. And the other thing that uh, happens is that, you know, people start to get more interested in stroke play gradually and in particular the English as soon as golf moved into England and now we're talking the very first what you would call truly English course is built in 1864 at Royal North Devon and five years after that Hoy Lake where we just had the open is 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 built and opens up so the English immediately preferred stroke play to match play and I think it's kind of like it's 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 an interesting mindset difference, you know, that would would continue and even become more so in America. But early in the time when the English are starting to play, they um, they will keep their score in a match. Okay, they're playing a match, but they'll put everything out and they'll be writing their numbers down on a card, which make Scotsmen lose their minds. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you writing down your score? It's a match. It, it, it doesn't matter, you know. But the English, from the very beginning, pref- liked stroke play. And it was the English who, who started creating competitions built around the idea of a number of strokes uh, rather than uh, a straight-up match against another human. All right. So 1870, this article by Alexander Dolman comes out, which essentially invents the 
the word par or applies the word par to this context, perhaps for the first time. Now, in the decades after that, it wasn't as though par immediately emerged in its modern form. There were, as I understand it, a number of intermediary concepts or different types of ways of understanding individual performance in relation to a standard. So, uh, you know, could you describe some of those for me? What were people talking about when they talked about something like par? The way people conceived of golf in those days, between Tommy and, let's say, the turn of the century, was with this, there was a notion about level fours. Because, you know, people didn't assign strokes to holes until 1911, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But they had this idea that a hole was a one-shotter, a two-shotter, or a three-shotter. How many shots would a reasonable player require to reach the green? And then they would just assume two putts would be added on by good players. A lot of players would get three putts. So, um, you know, then they, they developed because of that. Obviously, if you go around, um, and they always played in increments of 18, even when they weren't 18-hole courses. So, for instance, Presswick is a 12-hole course, but if you played in a tournament, you played it three times around to get 36 or two 18s, as we think of 18s now. So people, you know, and St. Andrews was 18 holes, and that had, you know, was evolving into a standard. Not many courses were 18 holes, but they wanted to be 18 holes. And so the mindset was thinking about 18 holes. And if you think about a mix of one-shotters, two-shotters, and three-shotters over 18 holes, you can see how they would evolve to a concept they called level fours. Brilliant golf was to go around in level fours. And by brilliant, I mean exactly that. Absolutely first class, very rarely achieved golf would be level fours, almost mythical. So, you know, if you shot level fours for 18 holes, obviously you shot 72. And that sort of is, you can see where these concepts are beginning to fold into each other. But most of the early tournaments, they would report that so-and-so was six over fours, you know, so meaning that they shot 78 or, you know, if it was a par 72. So that was the way they thought about it, was getting around the course in level fours. And then there was a concept of bogey golf as well, right? Yes, and this is something the English introduced. In 1891, a man named Hugh Rotherdam invented a competition at Coventry Country Club that came to be known as the bogey competition. So the idea was, you know, and the Scots hated this so much, it's hard to it's hard to 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 put uh, to, to describe how much they hated it. In fact, <laughs> for many many years, the royal and ancient refused to write any rules for a bogey competition. They didn't want any part of this. But yeah, the history it repeats itself that, too. They they probably have hated a number of innovations out of England and then the U.S. Uh, later on. Yeah, so, no, that, yeah. that is true. <laughs> they they have, they have been mostly interested in tending their own garden. But in any case. Um, this, this competition would you, everybody is essentially playing a match against the course. So you're playing against the, what they called originally the ground score of the course. So we assigned a target score to every hole. And if you beat the target score, you won the hole. If you didn't, you lost the hole. So the person who, this came to be known as the bogey score over time. Because there was a very popular song. There's always been the notion of the bogeyman in Scotland and England. And there was a very popular song then called Hush, Hush, Here Comes the Bogeyman. And um, so uh, then it gradually somebody assigned it a rank and it became known as Colonel Bogey. So there was this big figure. You're playing against Colonel Bogey in a match. And the person who beats Colonel Bogey by the most holes wins the match. That's how they did it. 
And so you can see that in the necessity of assigning a score to the whole, you're now approaching something like, very like what we think of as par. But what's interesting to understand, Garrett, is when they were assigning a bogey score to a hole, they weren't assigning it as what you would think a professional player would make on this hole. They were thinking of it as, what would a good solid club player, like a low handicap man, not necessarily even a scratch person, be able to make on this hole, or should make? And that became the bogey score, what you should make if you're a decent player. And obviously a lot of un, you know not very decent players played golf then, as they do now. And uh, so people would be way over the bogey score sometimes, uh, and and you know really great players might be under it. But so it wasn't exactly what we think of as a par, but it was creeping quite close to it. And scores assigned to holes obviously is 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 closer still. It seems to me that there are two big innovations here with the bogey competition. One of which you just named, which is that individual holes are being assigned a certain number. That's very different from level fours, right? And so now we're getting down to the granular level of the hole and saying this hole should be played in this number of strokes. And then the other thing is not not following the concept of ideal or perfect golf. This is more like what a player might be expected to shoot. Not in this case necessarily a scratch or professional or elite player, but a normal player. This is not a not a uh, an abstract concept of perfect golf that we're talking about. This is more grounded, and so that those two things strike me as very distinct moves toward a modern notion of of uh, par. No, and and this is the time you know you got to keep in mind in the eighteen nineties. Golf is absolutely exploding in England. You know, you get to periods of time in the 1894-95 where one golf course is being built every week in England. And so the game is really growing super fast. More and more and more players are getting into it. And, of course, women are also starting to take to the game in great numbers. And uh, it's the women who actually um, end up taking the next big step along the road to assign pars to individual holes. And uh, I think that's one thing that's, that's not quite as well known in history uh, as it should be, uh, really the contribution that women have made uh, to the organization of the game. And what is that uh, contribution in this particular case? How did, how did women players contribute to the concept of, of par? In 1893, a, a, a bunch of women's golf clubs got together to form the Ladies Golf Union. You know, at this very same time, there's a huge argument going on in the men's game about who is in control of this game. Certain Englishmen, like Dr. William Laidlaw Purvis, uh, felt like somebody in London should take over this game in a way that, you know, soccer and tennis have been, have been sort of circular, you know, focused in London. And of course, but the majority of golfers, I think, felt that the Royal and Ancient should be in charge of the game. But the Royal and Ancient really wasn't all that interested in being in charge of the game. They had, you know, begun to take on some responsibilities, like they had taken on responsibility for the amateur championship. You could write to them and ask for a ruling about a question of the rules, but that was not official. That was their opinion. And of course, most people used what they called the St. Andrews rules. They got them from the St. Andrews Golf Club, who had essentially copied them from the Leith Golf Society. And so um, there wasn't any organizational structure in the men's game. Purvis couldn't get anybody, couldn't get any traction in the men's game because he was a bit of a difficult man. 
And, you know, he mostly turned off all the people whose help he needed, to be honest. And uh, I think uh, Bob Crosby would probably back me up on that. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love these stories about Layla Purvis. He, he was apparently just a pain in the neck. <laughs> he was a handful and three quarters. And if you read the Royal Wimbledon history, you know, he's one of the key movers there. And they have some rather unpleasant things to say about him in their own history. But, um, you know, he saw an opportunity with the women's game. And it was Purvis... Harry Everard, a writer, and a few others who helped uh, helped found the Ladies' Golf Union. And through the Ladies' Golf Union, Purvis set out to accomplish many of the things he wanted to accomplish in the men's game but could not accomplish. The first one being the formation of a union. Ultimately, the Rules Committee was formed at St. Andrews in 1897, and all that was sorted out four years down the road. But in 1893, the women did this, and they had three goals. One is to host a national championship. The two is to uh, create a handicapping system, and this is the key one that I wanted to talk about, and then also to just organize the game for women around the nation and promote the game. So they set out with Purvis on the creation of a handicapping system, and by, I think it was took three or four years for it to be perfected. I haven't got the dates down just yet, but let's say by 1897, it's perfected, and what that involved was the assigning of a scratch score now, a scratch score being the score a scratch player should make. And, you know, that evolved into the concept of the standard scratch score that you see now on all British scorecards. And basically, you can't really have a handicapping system if you don't have a means of assigning pars, to, you know, numbers to holes in a more refined way than the bogey competition because one course needs to relate to another course. You know, you need to have a handicap needs to be able to travel from Lytham and St. Anne's to St. Andrews or to Royal St. George's to wherever the game was played. And so there needed to be more precision in the assigning of the score as opposed to a competition at one club where you're playing against Colonel Bogey, if you understand what I mean. And so this is when things really start to become very precise as to the score of holes. And of course, not right away, but the men, you know, the men were very slow in adjusting to the reality of this handicapping the system that the women had put up. In part, I think just because of the attitude men had toward women in that age, uh, you know, very unfortunate. And um, so they were slow in, on the uptake, but then eventually they came up with a system nearly identical. And, you know, and once the handicapping systems were in place, you were really moving toward a tremendous formalization of par, and there's like one more big step that comes right after the after the uh, turn of the century. And let's get to that big step. And and if I'm if I'm predicting this right, I have a feeling it has something to do with the game as it was played in in the U.S. Yes, you know the United States Golf Association, um, you know, was formed in 1895, and you know became the ruling authority in the United States. That uh, was and still is the only place in the world that's not ruled by the royal and ancient. And there have been uh, mostly cooperation between them, actually very admirable cooperation in the main, but there have been points of tension, points of disagreement, points where the U.S. approved things that the royal and ancient would not approve, steel shafts being one of the major examples, but there have been other things, large ball, small ball, different other points. of. But on the rules, they've mostly, even the stymie, they've, they've varied on the rules at times, but they've mostly gone in lockstep. In 1911, uh, the, the, the USGA issued what I think of as the first one I've seen of a formalization of par to a whole. So they were giving out guidelines for the creating of golf courses as part of the agronomy part that they do and other things they do to help, the, you know, the maintenance and building of golf courses. And they were giving, you know, up to 225 yards would be assigned to par three. 
225 to 400 to 500 would be assigned a par of four. 500 or over, uh, up to you know, over would be assigned a par five. And if it was 600 or over, they even note this, it would be a par six. So their first list um, includes, and so that it shows you that it's, it's still evolving because we've never had a notion of a par six, you know, except in weird little golf courses that are trying to do something strange by making an 800 yard hole or whatever, you know. And, uh, but, but in, in real golf, there's been never been any such thing as a par six, but their first issue listed par six. So I just think it's more evident of how it's been a little bit of a fungible, evolving concept uh, over many, many, many years. Uh, that now seems like uh, was brought down from on high by Moses or something. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, it, it, so what's striking about this history is how undecided it was until it was decided. And, and we all seem to agree that this was par and this is the only way that par is. But of course, in the process of inventing that concept, there were a great deal of detours and you know different concepts that came about you know until this this idea that we're all familiar with today finally coalesced yes and there was also disagreement about the quality of individual holes i think a lot of people who read the article by alexander dolman would have disagreed strongly with davy strath and jamie anderson that the first hole at st andrews should be that five would be considered perfect golf on that most people would have thought six because it was 578 yards long okay and they're playing with hickory clubs and they can't you know the long driving contest is being won by a 140 yard drive 160 yard drive you know people cannot hit it very far if you kill it and it rolls it might go 200 so most golfers even really first class golfers could not reach that green in three shots. And so there was a strong contingent of people who thought, well, wait a minute, you can't get there in three shots, it should be six. So, you know, my point is that even in the age when they were discussing it, not everybody agreed on on what con- what what the level of difficulty of any given hole should be. Now, obviously, from this point that we've now gotten to in the history, the early 1900s, when the modern notion of par in a form that we would recognize it today finally emerged. From that point, a lot had to happen in order for it to become the dominant and kind of set in stone idea that it is today. So what do you think are some of the main factors that caused par to become so entrenched? What are some of the general historical trends? Not necessarily specific events, but just, you know, the, the, the basics of what happened. I would say the advent there. of television, um, you know, is a big part of it because, you know, on television, you, you know, you need to know how everybody's scoring in relationship to everybody else. And a way of talking about that would be, you know, focusing on did he make a par on this hole or a bogey on this hole? And so I think you know, that is a big part of it. Just the presence of it on every scorecard you ever pick up, you know, uh, with, you know, how many, you know, how, what's the par of this course? You know, how many par fives, how many par threes, you know, whatever. And, and you know, you're in, you know, I think the, just the, the fact that every time you stand on a tee, you have the thought in your mind, I need to make par and that's four here or that's five here. I just think it became, you know, more, um, 
more a part of our mindset and our consciousness than it had been in the past when golf was played more freely and more, you know, as a man-on-man competition when you didn't need to think so much about your individual score. So that, but I would say probably television is probably the biggest one. And also, I'm not sure where along the line it happened, probably Robert Trent Jones, but when the USCGA somehow got the notion that their mission in life was to defend par, to defend par on the golf course by making it harder and harder and harder, and some of us might say more and more ridiculous. Uh, so I sort of think that, you know, the idea of the open doctor uh, is probably a big contributor because the point of the open doctor coming and attending to the patient was to make it impossible to score par, right? Right. Yeah, uh, b- breaking par was the disease, and the open doctor was there to cure that for sure. Um, Joe Dye's role here is obviously profound. Joe Dye was the, I believe his title was the executive director or something like that of the USGA from the 1930s through the 1960s when he uh, jumped on with the fledgling PGA Tour. But his setup philosophy and his basically general philosophy of championship golf was that par is sort of the governing concept and that if the winning score was below par, that that was not as good as the winning score being exactly par or above. Par should be a great score on a whole. That was his idea. And as far as I know, he was the first setup executive in golf to start to manufacture scoring in relation to par. And by that, I don't just mean growing rough and narrowing fairways and putting in new bunkers, which he had Robert Trent Jones do at a number of American courses that hosted the U.S. Open. Obviously, those were important things. But he even went to the extent of reassigning the par of certain holes, turning par fives into par fours without really shortening them that much, and producing a course par of 70 as opposed to 72, and therefore obviously making it harder to score even par at a golf course. And so that, I think, is the factor that really shows how important par already was by the post-World War II era, that Joe Dye was in there just reassigning par. The only reason for that, really, is if you're concerned about the score to par and think that the legitimacy of the championship rests in part on how scoring works out in relation to par. Yes, and you know, and I do think that, you know, obviously the English were the very interested in stroke play and scoring from the beginning, but it went through an order of magnitude change when Americans took up the game in earnest after the First World War. You know, Americans were obsessed and still are obsessed with their score. You could go to Scotland today and you could play golf on one of the greatest championship courses in the world. Let's say you went to Royal Dornick and you played there. You game off the golf course into the pub. There isn't a single Scotsman who's going to ask you, what'd you score? They're going to ask you, how was your game? What did you think of the course? You know, but Americans, I've never come off an American golf course where the first question isn't, what did you score? You know, some of it was Joe Dye was in some ways a mirror of his own community because American players becoming, you know, being, you know, know, really good golfers are driven people. And, you know, they're driven to lower their score. 
And so they need something to measure themselves against. And of course, par was that something. And the idea of beating par, you know, uh, is you know, every single person I think that I know that plays golf has thresholds they're trying to get below. I want to break 100. I want to break 90. I want to break 80. You know, some, you know, people get to break 70, but not that many. You know, so I do think that it, some of it was the American mindset and dies, dies, you know, was a sort of what I would call a taken to the extreme reflection of the American mindset that already existed and had existed pretty much since the 20s and 30s when Americans were just practiced all the time. British people never practiced. You know, the ancient golf facilities, they don't have a range. Nobody practiced. You know, Americans practiced obsessively, and all of their golf courses had practice areas. Those were unknown in Britain. So a lot of this, the sort of Americanizing of the game, is another thing that has created this mindset of, you know, par is, is the sacrosanct thing in golf, and uh, that's what, you know, what must be upheld in a tournament. And also, as you've alluded to already, the practice of keeping track of a tournament in relation to par is mostly an American invention. Now, I don't know the exact year that this was introduced. I think I would be able to find it if I were to look at David Owen's book. I'm not not at home right now, so I wasn't able to check uh, before we jumped on for this podcast. But I know that the legendary CBS producer, Frank Cherkinian, who for years ran the Masters telecast on CBS, which introduced a number of innovations that we're now very used to now on golf telecasts, was the first person to realize, you know what, this makes a lot more sense if we display scoring in relation to par. Because if we display scoring as a cumulative number, then people won't really know where players are in relation to each other because some have finished before others have started. And so if we can invent a leaderboard that has score to par, then people will be able to keep track of the tournament much more effectively. Now, obviously, this decision made a lot of sense for television golf. Obviously, it you know it's it's a much superior way to to watch television golf. Otherwise, it gets pretty confusing. But I don't think that he could have predicted that that Sherkinian could have predicted how profound the effect of this decision would be on the way that people understand everything about a golf tournament. We just saw it at the U.S. Open at LACC, where as soon as a few red numbers appear on that leaderboard, people start freaking out, right? You know, it's so fascinating to me, Gary. You know, I think you're totally right, and that's a brilliant observation about Turkanian. You know, that was sort of like there was already a fairly large fire, and that's kind of like throwing gas on the fire of, 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 of focusing on par. And obviously, it makes perfect sense for television. It's a brilliant innovation for television. But it did, I think, you know, create, even ratchet up another several degrees the idea that, you know, once people start to realize that people are way under par, well, then, you know, they, um, you know, they don't think about it in the way that I would think they should think about it is, well, is par too low? I mean, you know, is it, or do we need to make par lower? Or, I mean, higher or whatever, you know, do we need to change the number of the par on the whole rather than, uh, you know, and I think what's happened here lately is that, you know, L.A. Country Club was just, that course was brilliant. 
it was, you know, and I think uh, it played quite brilliantly, and it was really fun golf to watch, and I didn't care one whit if somebody was nine under or five under or whatever they were. The, the, the shots that they were required to play called for actual skill and, and, and so forth and so on. So my, my view of the world is now that we need to be thinking of par in the way they might have thought of it earlier as a more of a fungible concept. And I think a lot of golf courses that are played, especially the mundane courses they tend to play on the PGA Tour now, uh, those should be par 60, uh, 67, you know, <laughs> not par 70 or par 72. I mean, honestly, if you can hit the ball 340 yards in the air, as large percentage of tour players now can do, can a 340, 50-yard hole be considered a par 4 or not? Is that a par 3? You know, uh if you're playing from within 70 yards of every par four hole, are they really par fours? You know, because you, you're, if you're within 70 yards, you, you're going to be able to hit it close enough that maybe you ought to make that putt. You know, I, I do think what we're doing is angsting over the low scoring and then destroying the golf course to try to create high scoring when what we should be doing is thinking of par in the way that it's always been thought of as an evolutionary concept and the par on most modern golf courses for a professional playing modern equipment really ought not to be higher than 68, in my opinion. You know, it's just, and the scoring proves that to be true. Even in places where they're tricking it up to the nth degree to try to make the scoring high, they still haven't been able to keep an open under 10 under in the last few years. Most of them have been minus 10 or thereabouts for the winner. The ball goes too far, the equipment's too strong, the players are too strong. So I think what we need to do is just think of par differently, not alter the golf course. Yeah. If there's anything that we can learn from the history that you've taken us through in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it's that par hasn't always been as strictly defined as we think it is now. And so certainly it can be, I believe you used the word fungible before. <laughs> I think that's a good yeah. word. It can be a, a fungible idea rather than a really strict one. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, and soon we'll be back with Stephen Proctor to discuss some of the more philosophical matters when it comes to par. Our next partner for this episode is Golf Genius. Your club may use the Golf Genius tournament management system for your club events and tournaments. At the Fried Egg, we use it for all of our events, and it has worked great for us. Registration, scoring, leaderboards, results, Golf Genius handles it all and does it right. Golf Genius also has a great product for the Pro Shop staff. Golf Genius Golf Shop is used to streamline special merch orders, track stock orders, manage demo clubs, simplify staff scheduling, organize club repairs, and automate communication with club members. It's a great productivity tool that saves time, money, and hassles. But most importantly, it really improves member service, which is a big win-win. Hundreds of clubs are using the platform today and are fired up about the benefits. If you're involved in the golf shop business, we recommend that you check it out. Just go to golfgenius.com to learn more. All right, we're back with Stephen Proctor. So Stephen, you know, one of the early concepts of par, as articulated by the USGA in 1911, uh, is that the length of hole has something to do with the par number that gets assigned to it. 
in today's age of increasing distance off the tee, you know, ever increasing quality of technology, where do you think we should land in defining the concept of par when it comes to length of hole? Well, you know, I sort of feel that in an age when a goodly number of golfers can fly the ball, that doesn't count running, fly the ball 320 or 340 yards, can you really think of a 380-yard par f- hole as a par four now? It's really at the most a par three and a half. Um, but, you know, so I think, you know, it would be wise if we are continue to be obsessed with the idea that someone shooting eight under par is a crisis, uh, then um, I think we should then adjust the par to the reality of the distances players hit the ball on the men's tour in particular. And, you know, just as Joe Dye lowered it to 70, lowered to 68 or 67. But, you know, I, I think the main thing is, I think it would be healthy for the game if people stopped obsessing on whether people were over and, or under par and tried to look at the game from what value of shots, how difficult are the shots this call, calls for, and who demonstrates the most skill in executing them uh, rather than, you know, a numbers chase. Yeah, and and I think that thinking about it, in this way would maybe help is the 13th hole at Augusta easier than some run of the mill par four or par five on the PGA tour, just because players average under par on the 13th hole at Augusta national. We are familiar with the shots that players have to hit on that great hole in the masters. That is a difficult hole to reckon with because you're asked to do really nerve-wracking, difficult things in order to score well. But yes, if you look at the scoring average on the hole, it's pretty low. It's consistently under par, less so since they lengthened it. But even before the lengthening, that hole was no doubt very, very difficult to confront on the drive, on the approach into the green, on the you know, chip shots, et cetera, that players had to hit around the green. Everything about that hole is challenging, and yet the score to par is low. And so what that should tell people is that score to par is not a very good way of assessing the actual difficulty challenge that a hole presents. Yes, I completely agree with that, Garrett. And I, you know, we have reached a level of obsession with it, I feel like. Um, you know, it was driving me crazy during the Open at the LA Country Club because, you know, so much negativity around the fact that people were shooting low scores uh, when in fact you know the golf that was played there was pretty darn exciting golf as compared to a lot of the you know slog fests that you get at a U.S. Open where it's a 22-yard fairway and you know everybody's wedging out from the rough so I don't know I found that way more interesting to watch and I found it kind of dispiriting um, all the negative commentary about the golf course r- related to the question of par Par's done some things that were not so good for us, I feel like, you know, and this this quest to have a course that where you can't break par, I think is going 100% 80-degree opposite of what the game needs. You know, um, the game is under attack in a lot of quarters environmentally because obvious reasons. It takes up a lot of space. It uses up a lot of water. It often uses too many chemicals. Um, and so... The answer to that problem is not to make 8,500-yard golf courses. You know, it's uh, to either change our equipment or change our concept of what, what matters scoring-wise. And I don't, I don't, you know, 
I don't see a great groundswell of interest in the rollback, except among architecture types. Uh, the average golfer seems to have less than zero interest in it, which has always been true, Garrett. You know, when the, when the, we proposed to ban the rubber core ball at the beginning, you know, all the, you know, the, the aficionado crowd was all for it and the regular players were all against it. And that's sort of that, to my mind, that hasn't changed one iota <laughs> since, yeah. uh, since 1902. And so, you know, I guess I think the healthier route is care less about the score per hole. And just marvel at shots that get made. I'm I'm strongly in favor of the rollback. I would love to see a rollback, both of equipment and of the ball itself. I personally just rolled the game back for myself because I wanted it to be rolled back, and I went and played hickory clubs instead. Uh, but but so you know, but I I I worry that that's not going to happen. And then where do we go if we keep chasing this concept of create a course where they can't shoot under par? That's not going to happen. Right. And, you know, it's also hard to change people's mindset about par and to convince people that, you know, a course with a par below 70 is a real golf course. Somehow we've gotten it into our heads that 72, 73, 71, 70, those are real golf courses. But once you get to 69, right, one under 70, once you get there, that's not a championship golf course. Somehow we've gotten that idea in our heads as well, and it's preventing us from doing some things in our, you know, conceptualization of championship golf courses that's very limiting and is starting to require the lengthening of golf courses rather than a simple, you know, mental shift about what the par of a championship course can be. You know, I agree with what you said there, and I think it's more of an American thing than it is elsewhere, because when you go to Scotland, there are tons and tons of courses in Scotland that are highly popular, like Crail, that's par 69, uh, different other courses that are par in the 60s somewhere, and there's, you know, they, I think they view it as there are championship courses like St. Andrews and, uh, you know, Dornick and those, and then there are sporting courses, where it's more about how many shots do you have in your bag, how crafty are you, than it is about how far you can hit the ball. And so I think it's it's more of an American, That's again, I think that's more of an American mindset that if it's not par, I, I personally play about two-thirds of my golf on a course that has par 67, has one par five, six par threes, six extremely difficult par threes. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm happy to take anybody on that wants to bet that they can come and shoot their handicap on that course the first time they play it. Because you naturally you see the number on the, on the card, you see how many yards it is, and you think you're just going to bomb your way around there and bring this course to his knees, and that will not happen. You know, and I, so I, I just think there's different ways of looking at golf, and Americans do, are a little bit closed-minded. They want a championship course of X number of length, and uh, they want to play from the back tee regardless of handicap. I'm curious also what the effect of the idea of par has been on golf architecture, on the way that golf courses get built. I wonder if you have thoughts on that, on on whether this idea has kind of put all of us into a box when it comes to building golf courses. I certainly think in terms of arrangement, I mean, like there's a sameness to, uh, you know, when golf architecture began, you had a piece of land in front of you and you figured out how many good holes fit on it. And that's what, that's how many holes there would be. 
and they might all be par four. So Ely is a classical example of this. I think Ely is about 16 par fours, and, you know, you just the holes that were there, they, they made. And um, in a modern age, you know, we do get put into the box if it needs two par fives on each side, two par threes on each side, and so I do think it gets a little scripted, and that can't help but influence the nature of the design because where am I fitting in my two par threes, you know, as opposed to how does this land want to be used to create interesting golf holes? And uh, I do think, you know, obviously I feel like the modern, the more modern architects, the Gil Hanses and Tom Dokes and Bill Core and Crenshaws, those types of architects and the younger group of people that are coming up behind them, you know, Jay Blasey and, and Fry and Strack and some of these people, you know, they're, they're being less scripted by that sort of thing. Um, and I feel like they're creating more interesting and more innovative golf courses. But I do think it's sort of hemmed us into the idea that we need this many par threes, this many par fours, and this many par fives, or it's not a real golf course. And they need to be this long. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I just came back from Sand Valley, the resort in Wisconsin. And right now there's a course being built, almost completed, called Sedge Valley, designed by Tom Doak and Renaissance Golf Design. And it's going to be a par 68. There are no par fives on the course. It's a bunch of par fours. There's one section of the course where you have three out of four holes in a row are par threes. And so I'm hoping that when people play this course and realize that it's a genuine challenge and great golf, that something of a shift will emerge. And That can be really, really important because, you know, that sounds like Ely or Crail or any of the, or Dunaverty, where my friend Jim Hartzell loves to play. There's, you know, a lot of these courses are not long. They're just super fun and tough, super tough and challenging to play. And, you know, um, so I do, I, I think that's wonderful. I, I knew, I had read a little bit about Sedge Valley, but I, I didn't realize, you know, the, the sequencing of three par threes in a row, that kind of thing I think of as fabulous. That's what, that's what the ground wanted. That's, you know, so I do feel like we're getting back to an older time. You know that I've been thinking about old Tom Morris a lot and the way that he, he just discovered holes in the landscape. He couldn't move anything. And, you know, I sort of feel like we're, letting the land speak to us a little more in the modern age about where the hole should go. And I think of that as a very positive step overall. Yeah, I think about what it was like for old Tom Morris to lay out a golf course liberated from the idea of par. It must have been such a different exercise, not just in the sense that you can look for holes that fit the land, which is obviously very important, but also because with each individual hole, you aren't thinking to yourself, are players going to object to this because it doesn't fit into a par category? Because players often do that. You know, players player, players often are le- unhappy with a par four because they don't think that it's a proper par four. They think I can't make a par on, on this hole or a birdie is too easy on this hole. It has to it has to fit that category, and that's so limiting. You know, imagine if you will, what kind of crazy person would build a five hundred and seventy eight yard hole uh, in eighteen fifty one. Okay, the opening hole too. No gentle handshake there. Five hundred and seventy-eight yard opener with the swamp in the middle of the in the middle of the hole. So you know, and a, and a number of you know, if you go to Makrahanish, um, the first hole at Makrahanish, you have to carry the ocean, um, and you know, t- to reach the fairway. So you know, Tom was perfectly happy to 
to challenge you with really dramatic shots. And he didn't have any thought in his mind that that might cause you to make a six. Well, who cares? You know, it just was so different then. And I think you're right that, you know, he, he was much freer to create interesting golf holes because his mind was not cluttered up with any notion as to, number one, how many he required. Number two, what length they should be. You know, just was what his only focus of what will be sporting and fun and challenging. And people, you know, people judge courses differently than most of the reviews you read from the 1890s are like rating the course on the quality, the difficulty of its hazards, how hard are its hazards to deal with. And nowadays, you know, any hazard is too hard of a hazard. It has to be raked. It can't be any deeper than this. I need to be able to see the flag at all times. You know, nobody had those ideas in their head then. Uh, golf was way more of an adventure then, you know, the blind shots, you know, all kinds of, of things that are an anathema today and I think have actually diminished the fun of the game. If you go to Scotland and you play a hole like the Himalayas at Presswick, which is, uh, you know, a giant dune that you're hitting over, you have no idea where the green is or where your ball is going to land, but there's quite a lot of fun in hiking up the hill to see what happened. And, you know, there's sort of a punch bowly green on the other side that, if you hit it decent, helps gather you up and rewards you. So there's just a ton of fun in that kind of golf in my mind. And we've we've sort of, um, partly because of par, because everybody wants to be able to make par, uh, the pros in particular, you know, we've sort of, you know, all those things have been wiped out of any golf you ever see the PGA Tour play. And even the, even the you know, even the Royal and Ancient has tamed an awful lot of things um, over the years, uh, as a result of complaints that you couldn't really make par there. Yeah, it's it's one of those, you know, the more rules you put on a golf course, the more likely you are to get a kind of standardized product, which to me is the opposite of what I want out of a golf course. I want each golf course to be radically unique because that is the thing that is so great about golf is that all of our playing fields are different. And the more we try to standardize them, the more we're kind of limiting what designers can do and the more we're limiting i think how fun the game can be to play and you know par is is one of the big things that is limiting us right now and i I just I, i want people to think about like what are some of the most exciting holes on the professional circuits to watch often it's the holes that exist uncomfortably between categories of par it's the so called drivable par four or you could consider it a long par three, but if it were a long par three, then the pros would complain about it because they, you know, a drivable par four is okay. They most of the time. Right, exactly. They'd make more bogeys. They'd, and they're okay with a drivable par four because they're making birdie a lot of the time. But in any case, the lesson is that these holes that are in between 13 at Augusta, 15 at Augusta, the holes that just are the half par holes, as we've, as we've come to call them, tend to be the ones that are most compelling, most memorable over time. Well, and the other thing to me, Garrett, is, you know, I feel like if I was asked to name the most compelling golf tournament that I've watched in recent years, I would name the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne. And uh, the other thing that I think we're forgetting, especially on this side of the pond here, is that when the ball bounces and rolls unpredictably, uh, and when the rough is of an unpredictable character, then golf gets really, really exciting and the cream rises to the top. You know, watching Tiger Woods outclass every player on both sides of that President's Cup at Royal Melbourne 
because he knew how to move the ball along the ground and make the shots it required. It's one of the coolest things I've ever watched in golf. And, you know, I just feel like there's a big lesson in that. And, you know, even at St. Andrews in the most recent Open, I played it a month before the 150th Open, and there was rough everywhere. And I'm like, wait a minute, what are they doing? You know, I mean, so so I just feel like we've lost a little bit of sight of the idea of the excitement of the ball of unpredictability. You know, uh, and some of this is brought on by tour players who want everything to be predictable. But, you know, when the ball runs into crazy places, that's when golf is both fun to play, maddening at times, but fun, and also from the standpoint of spectator entertainment, it's millions of times more fun. All right. Thank you, Stephen, for discussing this with me. That was every bit as interesting as I thought it would be. I'm, I'm glad that we got a chance to, to do this podcast. Now, one thing I really admire about you, Stephen, is that you're always working on a project or two or three and really making headway on them. So what are you working on right now? What should people know about? Well, I, I've finished one thing, which is I wrote a magazine regarding the old Tom Morris golf trail which uh, includes uh, a large essay on Old Tom and his approach to discovering golf in the natural landscape, as well as essays on all the 18 courses along the Old Tom Morse Trail that deal with their history, Tom's involvement, and the actual act of playing them. Uh, So that comes out next June. But the real big thing I'm working on is a book um, about, I really want to do something on the early history of the women's game. In the course of researching the Long Golden Afternoons we were talking about, I started to realize the huge impact of Ladies Golf Union and uh, my friend Michael Morris, and I think you've had Michael on, yes. did a book about the great English golf boom that demonstrated that women's golf was actually growing faster than men's golf through much of this period, which I also find fascinating. And then, so I'm, I'm going to write a book about the early evolution of women's golf, but the, the story will be built around the rivalry between American Glenna Collette and British, Britain's Go- Joyce Weatherid two of the really, truly immortal women golfers. And, you know, their rivalry, which spans a decade between 1925 and 1935, when Joyce comes to play in America, um, really paves the way for the uh, invention, the, the advent of the Ladies Professional Golf Association, which happens like, you know, 15 years later. Uh, but so that's what I'm working on now. And I'm, you know, it, it takes a year or so of intensive reading and researching to get to the point where you can start writing. So I'm hoping to be able to start writing in May. All right. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that project. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Let's do it again soon. Thanks for having me on, Garrett. You take care. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was produced and edited by Matt Ruchus. Thank you, Matt. There's one thing that you can do right now that would really help the Fried Egg Podcast, and that's to go to wherever you're listening to us and give us a rating and or review. My understanding is that the ratings and reviews on the Apple Store are especially meaningful, so if you're listening to us on an Apple Podcast app, that would be a great way to show some support of the show and to give us some feedback on how we're doing in the process. All right, that's it. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again soon.